0: The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's Baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to
1: download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt
0: Chapman. with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend.
1: This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. You're going to love our first guest, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. What a treat to have him on the program. Former general manager Steve Phillips, former outfielder and now media extraordinaire Doug Glanville, and then former general manager of the San Francisco Giants, Bobby Evans. But we'll start with a guy. 18-time All-Star, American League MVP in 1997, American League Rookie of the Year in 1967, was a seven-time American League batting champion, won the Roberto Clemente Award in 1977. His number 29 has retired both in Minnesota and down in Anaheim with the Angels. He's in the Twins Hall of Fame, the Angels Hall of Fame, and in 1991, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The great Rod Carew, what a treat to have him on the program. He's one of the great players of all time. He's American League MVP. He was American League Rookie of the Year, an, 18, an 18-time eighteen All-Star, won the Roberto Clemente Award, a seven-time batting champion. He is in the Twins Hall of Fame. His number's retired there. He's in the Angels Hall of Fame. His number is retired there also. It is an absolute honor to have truly one of the greats Rod Carew with us here on A's Cast Live. Rod, I really appreciate you coming on.
2: Thanks so much, Chris, for having me on.
1: Well, you've come out with a new book, One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. What was it like putting this book together and talking about your life?
2: Well, it was easy. Um, Tough in some parts, but... uh, You know, I I enjoyed doing the book, and uh, Reggie Jackson is the one that named the book for me. So, you know, kudos to him.
1: Yeah, you played with so many great players. You mentioned Reggie. uh, You talk about Nolan Ryan, Harmon Killebrew. Uh, You played on some great teams with some great players. That had to be fun to look back at those times and those relationships.
2: Oh, definitely. You know, um, Tony Oliva was uh, the guy that was m- my mentor, you know, he took me in as a rookie and as his roommate when there was room when they had roommates in those days, and we roomed for about eleven years. And um, he taught me a lot, taught me how to tie my first tie, how to uh, act on the field and off the field. The acting on the field was uh, a little bit tough, but. Um, He was my original original mentor. Kilber was, too. Uh, Two great guys, two great personalities. And Tony is the same guy today as I met my first year uh, in spring training.
1: It had to be pretty scary for you. You're born in, in Panama, and to come to the big leagues at such an early age, what was that like?
2: Well, the, the key thing, you know, is that I was abused back home by my dad, and the lady that delivered me on the train was in Panama visiting, so she was on the same train that my mom was on, and I guess I decided to come out and see the world uh, a little bit earlier than I was supposed to, and so she uh, delivered me um, because, you know, they had, they had the black section and and the white section. So the doctor that I ended up with his name, Dr. Rodney Klein, uh, he came back and finished the uh, procedure. And so my my mom gave me his name. And I I must tell you that he took care of me from that day on while I was, you know, living in Panama.
1: You know, I I think about your illustrious career and the numbers that you put up that truly make you one of the great hitters of all time. And analytics shows us how great, you know, because we just think about home runs. You only hit 92 home runs, but your career analytics, I mean, obviously a lifetime 328, but you were so productive. Your all around game, that's what makes your numbers stick out. Talk about your game and how you were one tough out. There's no question about it.
2: Well, you know, Chris, the- the key thing is that um, we were taught how to play the game the right way. Moving runners over, bunting, hitting, hitting running. And uh, today, they just don't do that. You have more guys striking out than getting base hits. And so I don't really enjoy it as much, but I'm still part of the game. Uh, I just hope that it can revert back to the way we used to play it because I see some things that happen during the course of a ball game that I really don't care for. Um, But, you know, now they're looking for power guys. Um, You know, I could have hit maybe, you know, 20 home runs a year, but I had a gift of using the whole field to hit and I was successful doing that. So why get away from it? You know, for me to hit home runs, I would have had to try pulling the ball all the time and, um, that's, that wasn't my game, but when I went to the Twins, they said they would like me to get on base, steal a few bases, score some runs, and um, that's what I did throughout my whole career.
1: Your MVP season is phenomenal. You hit three eighty eight, You led the league in runs, hits, triples, on-base percentage. You led it in OPS and OPS+. You know, we talk so much. It's, you know, hitting 400. We haven't seen it since Ted Williams. And there were a couple of years where I think you thought about it when you hit 364, 359, and 388, which is just amazing. What is it like chasing 400?
2: Well, it was was tough for me because, you know, I didn't really uh, get along with the print media uh, too well. And so, you know, I I used to have to get to the ball – ballpark extra early so I could get my work in and then have a breather before I went out for regular BP and uh, getting loosened up and stuff for the game. And when writers wanted to talk to me, once I started, that was it. I wouldn't talk to them until after the game. So, um, and the only way I came out and, and started uh, speaking to writers is because of my youngest daughter, Michelle, who passed away with leukemia in 1995, 96, and I promised her that um, that I would talk to the guys so that we could get more people involved in um, donating marrow so that other kids can make it. And she said, "Daddy, if I don't if I don't make it, that's okay, but help the, all the other kids that that need the help." So uh, now I'm more open with guys talking to them.
1: Well, you have to be so proud because obviously you lost your, your daughter far too young, but the money you have raised, the millions of dollars, and, and the people you have helped save, you have to be very, very proud of that.
2: Yes, I am, you know, and uh, she continues to to make me proud by my continued work with uh, pediatric cancer research, which is uh, children's cancer And, um, I go out at night now and I go for a drive just by myself. And, you know, I have a conversation with her, you know, I talk to her and I ask her questions and and just little things like that. And if she misses dad or, you know, how she's doing, you know, we just have a regular conversation at least twice a week.
1: Well, and of course you've had a heart transplant and, you got your heart from someone you knew very well. It, it is a very touching story. I know you talk about it in the book, One Tough Out, fighting off life's curveballs. But if you could tell that story, it's a, it's a beautiful story.
2: Well, you know, I, um, I went out one uh, morning to play, to play golf by myself. And uh, I had a, a widow maker heart attack. While I was playing, but I'm lucky because I was at the first hole, and if I was on the second, no one would have found me alive. But I was able to back my card up to the clubhouse, which was right there, and went inside and asked the lady if she could please call the paramedics one. And um, so she did, and I think I blacked out. Just when they walked in the door, I blacked out, and so they paddled me and, and brought me back to. To life so um, that was the first time and then I think when I was uh, on my way to the hospital it happened again so um, you know uh, I came out of it again but um, you know all I was doing was telling God that I wasn't afraid to die and I'm gonna go wherever he wants me to go either with him or staying here and continue doing my uh, charity work so he he kept me here maybe he thought he had enough good hitters up there
1: that he wasn't ready
2: for me yet but um, you know it's crazy because the young man that that uh, I got his heart and the kidney from um, he was 11 years old and I my son played on the basketball school uh, basketball team at school so I went out to uh, watch him and I was out just walking around a little bit. And this kid comes up to me and he says, you're what rocker, aren't you? I says, yeah. He says, well, I want to be an athlete when I grow up. I says, make your studies your first priority. He says, oh, I'm a good student. He says, but I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up. And that's when I first met him. He was 11 years old. And so um, uh, 18 years later, here I am looking for Hart. He had signed with uh, with the Jets. Then he signed with the uh, with the Ravens, and he was waiting to sign again with I think was with the Patriots. And he was working out, and he had an aneurysm, and his parents lost him. And um, my wife kept, ask, kept telling me, you know Conrad. I says, who's Conrad? I don't remember meeting Conrad you know, she's got a, a brain, like a memory that's just unbelievable. So I I was fortunate that I was wearing a LVAD, a little machine, for about 14 months that kept me alive. And um, so the first chance that I had to get a heart was from this young man. And we, were, we matched up pretty good. And and then I got a heart and I got a kidney from him, and um, come to find out that he only lived about eight miles from, from us. And, uh, you know, I thank him every day, you know, for sustaining me and keeping me alive and giving me a Maserati inside of my body now, you know, but it's it's an amazing story. And what, we, what I tried to do with the book is talk to people and let them know that um, anything can happen you know and you're fortunate if you can find someone and uh to give you more life and that's what god did for me you know he kept me around for a few more years so i appreciate that fact from from god and also from the ruling family
1: yeah, it's the these type of stories. I think people need to need to hear during these times. It's just a, a beautiful story, and I, I, I've been told I need to ask you. You know, we don't see people steal home anymore. I mean, that's just something that doesn't happen in baseball. But you have an interesting story. The Hall of Famer Harmon Killebrew is at the plate, and you steal home. What happened?
2: <laughs> you know, we were playing the California Angels when I was with its Twins, and Hort William was a pitcher, and I figured, you know, maybe if I steal a run early, it will, will help us. So I flashed a sign to Kilroo. He was at the plate, and um, he answered me. And, you know, Hort William was real slow to the plate. And as I'm sliding in, I mean, I beat the ball there, and as I'm sliding in, uh, Harmon started to swing. And then he backed up on. He started saying to me, Junior, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm sorry I answered. I'm sorry. So I said, Charlie, don't worry about it. Charlie was my name for him. And um, next day in the locker room, the guys in the PR office had a, a sign, tombstone sign made up and stuck it in my locker, which, which it read, here lies Rod Carew lying to left by kid over. So. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's true. You know, uh, I I was so happy that he didn't swing because that's the first time that we had come close to somebody swinging um, since I started trying to steal home.
1: Yeah, you know, we we've been watching a lot of uh, yesteryear baseball on the MLB Network, and I just think about the era of when you played. So many great Hall of Famers. Looking back at those all-star games, so many great African-American players, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, yourself. I mean, there was so Reggie Jackson. What was it like playing in your era?
2: Boy, I tell you, uh, some of the kids today couldn't play in my era, you know, because hitting home runs and flipping the bat and taking their time running around the bases and stuff like that, they would have been drilled or knocked down just to let them know that uh, you're disrespecting the pitcher. Um, and there are guys that didn't like it. Bob Gibson didn't like it. Colfax didn't like it. Drysdale didn't like it. You know, just some of the great pitchers, they, they kept you loose, you know. And today, if you go inside too much or too close, they're going to uh, give the pitcher a warning or give the, the other book, uh, uh dug got a warning, also, so it's not uh, the game isn't played as hard and as tough uh, today as it was when I played.
1: The book is one tough out, fighting off life's curveballs. Rod, I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on my program. As you've had a wonderful career, you've had a wonderful life. Be well, be safe, and good luck. And we'll promote this book. And I can't, I can't wait to read it.
2: Thanks, Chris. And I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, trying to help us sell some books and give some people some insight on taking care of of themselves, taking care of their hearts, the smoking, the drinking, a lot of that stuff uh, hurts, you know, and heart disease is the number one killer in this country for both men and women.
1: Thank you, Rod. You take care.
2: Thanks again for Helping us out.
1: What a treat having the great Rod Carew, and I cannot wait to read the book. You know, we've had a couple guys go from being front office people to media guys, and Steve Phillips is one of those. And you hear him on Sirius XM, the MLB channel, as he was the GM of the New York Mets. Loved getting his insight on A's Cast Live. Steve, how are you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletics. Hey, how are you? I, I am doing well, and you know i I was just talking to my audience here is we are on live. and I was I don't remember growing up, general managers then getting into the media, as we've seen with yourself and Jim Bowden and and Dan Duquette. Uh, it, it's really been fascinating because we've always seen ex players, uh, ex managers. But to have you guys now go into the media, and give us a whole different perspective. What's that been like for your career?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that, that one of the things that that I wondered when I first got into it was, you know, I figured, well, the next big-name, sexy-name player, they're going to say, all right, well, we want that guy over you. But what I found was that being a general manager is a different way of thinking. It's a different way of looking at things, and, it, and it's a unique way that – that I don't know that everybody really understood because we've heard what players thought, we've heard what managers thought, but general managers have a different perspective. That you've got to look at both the short-term impact of everything that's going on, but also the long-term impact and and how that could impact individuals, the team, and the organization as a whole. And so it sort of created a different niche uh, that, that that I think has been worthwhile to further educate the fans. And we've seen the growth of baseball fans and their understanding of the game grow so substantially you start to think about, you know, that batting average was the thing that we always thought was the most important. Wow, what's his batting average? That really doesn't tell you much of anything in relation to on base percentage and slugging percentage and OPS. And we've seen, I think, the education of, of you know, where, where we thought that wins were the thing to look for for a pitcher. And now we realize that's really a team stat. It's not about the individual. And I think that, that you know, for for uh, for general managers, there's been an opportunity, I think, to further educate a fan base and an audience uh, to look at the game a little bit differently.
1: You know, it's the, the famous line from Bill Parcells. You know, if I, if you want me, you want me to cook, you know, I want to order the groceries too. And that was the thing in football is these coaches wanted the power on personnel and you saw that they were only thinking about the now they weren't thinking about the future. And I think about that as a general managers, you not, you not only have to think about the big club now, but you got to think of the future. Plus you've got to run the whole minor league system.
0: Yeah. So that, that distinction is sort of the rub that sometimes happens between managers and general managers, you know, managers look at it. Well, what can the guy do for me now? And the general manager has to look at, you know, you know, now, but also tomorrow. And, you know, managers want to win as many games as they can today. General managers want to win as many games as they can for the longest period of time. And sometimes the personnel decision making doesn't always line up. It doesn't always sync up with with what the manager would want and the general manager want. There are times when managers look at it and think, well, if the guy's not doing anything for me, he's disposable. Just get him out of here get me somebody else. It doesn't work that way, right? There's there's a process that you have to go through. Uh, I thought when you started going to a Bill Parcells uh Quote. I thought it was the one where I think he told his wife, "Don't tell me about the pain. Just show me the baby." Uh, And I'm like, you know, (laughs) you know, this sort of. uh, You know, that was his other famous quote that uh, that he went to. But yeah, I get it, right? That, and I think for managers, sometimes you know, in the best relationship that managers and gentlemen have are the ones where there's a real understanding about how hard each other's job is, uh, and and respecting that, and being able to communicate through that. And I sort of learned the hard way, Bobby Valentine, my former manager and I sort of battled through that process and it wasn't uh, the most trusting relationship. And we won a lot together and had a lot of success together, but, but we wore each other down a little bit.
1: You know, I think about 1997 and 1998, Billy Bean was hired in 97, Brian Cashman in 98. They're very good friends, but their organizations are on the different ends of the spectrum, right? The Yankees have all the money. The A's don't. But the two of them have been so successful, and the runs that they have been on, when you talk about guys that have been running organizations since the 90s and we're in 2020, that is so rare.
0: Yeah, I mean, they were my protégés. I mean, I got the job in 97, and, and uh, Billy, a former minor league teammate of mine in the Mets organization, and Brian Cashman, a buddy from the New York area here, Uh, And and I think that as remarkable as it is that that they've had, you know, been able to succeed to be able to keep their jobs, it's just the physical and emotional and mental wear and tear of that job. I I could not have done it. Like, I'm amazed at those guys, you know, the the John Schurholzes of the world that had the long careers and for Billy and Brian, because it ate me up physically, emotionally, mentally. Uh, and you know, that, that the, the idea of hanging on every win and every situation and every decision that you make, uh, that it can wear you down. And I think that there's something to be said too uh, for organizations to recognize that change for the sake of change doesn't make sense, that you can replace a general manager or you're going to replace him with another young guy. That young guy is going to go through the same learning curve. The guy you're letting go just went through. And, and, you know, he's going to make some of those same mistakes and that there is that, that experience in, in continuity and and consistency really is important. Some of the best organizations have maintained the decision makers in those key positions for a long period of time.
1: And, and, And I think about when you were doing it, you're doing it in New York. And the Northeast is different than everywhere else, the Midwest, the West Coast, the South, the Southeast. What is the pressure like of being a person who runs an organization in New York?
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. I, Billy Bean would always say to me, he said I'd never want that job. He said I would never want the job that you have there. He said, you know, you get a you, you've got, you get enough money that you actually have to make decisions in areas where in Oakland they don't even have to consider it, and you feel a certain obligation. Like I felt like, all right, if I've got a certain amount of money from the owner, I need to spend it because you know, and 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 because it's going to burn a hole in my pocket, and it won't be there later if I don't. Because he might not let me go back to take that money. So you always felt like you needed to sort of spend what you had. Uh, and you you sometimes, because you have money, get involved in making decisions for longer term contracts that if they work out, you get a shot at a better player, but you also can sort of cripple and paralyze your organization that there's no exit strategy. And so, you know, I got caught in that a little bit myself with it. The other thing for me, I thought the Mets job was the toughest job in all of professional sports, the Mets GM job. because. You know, you got the pressures of the market. You're in New York with the Yankees, where they've got a history and tradition that's far richer, and you know, and an organization that's been around much longer than the Mets were. The Mets in '62, and the Yankees obviously from back in the day. Uh, and then you have got the 27 World Championships. You've got you know the Mets trying to win over a fan base, and and it just felt like we had to try to – The expectations were the same for the Mets, but the resources were much different. You know, I remember Brian Cashman and I starting out every year saying, "I'd say you know." Hey, what's your budget? And he goes, Yeah, I don't really have a budget. I just sort of get the guys that think we can help us win, and we figure it out from there. And I had a budget, and I had you know this amount of money I had to spend. And if I wanted to to get this guy who would take me beyond the budget, I needed to find a way to move money out of there in order to do it. Uh, but what Brian Cashman has done is he's evolved in a way. Like we we used to always look at the draft, you know, different than in Oakland where Billy would look at the draft, take the college guys you could get, look to sort of develop them. You know, we looked at it, Brian Cashman and I, is fresh meat to trade at the trade deadline to, get, to go get proven major league players, right? We weren't going to give those young guys opportunities. And then Cashman sort of evolved in a way over the years that if the young guys that we're trading away are helping the other teams win, then let's find a way to hold them. We'll go get the proven major leaguers and blend our young players in with our veteran players to try to do it. And he's had a great run of success in New York with the Yankees.
1: You know, I want to take you back to your playing days because I've talked to Billy about this. As you guys were in a very talented system, the Mets, but you had a bunch of crazy dudes there in the minor leagues that you were playing with.
0: Oh, no doubt. I, you know, I, the thing that, was that, that sticks out the most to me is, you know, for a position player, and I was a shortstop and second baseman, uh, for a position player, one of the worst times of the year is when you go to spring training and you get your first live batting practice against pitchers. Uh, and we used to go to spring training, and so we'd line up with Dwight Gooden, Randy Myers, I mean, Ron Darling, and you're taking batting practice, Sid Fernando, you're taking batting practice against these guys who are blowing 98 and are just erratic enough to scare the daylights out of you, that, you know, especially early in camp, you're going to get plunked a few times. I mean, honestly, it set me behind the first month of the season every year, or at least that's my story. And I'm sticking to it, but the number of welt marks I got hit in spring training with guys that just had these elite level arms, but they, they put the best major league teams in slumps. Can you imagine what they did to minor leaguers who were trying to figure their way out uh, to get through it? So, uh, yeah, so we had, you know, I, I roomed with Kevin Mitchell uh, in the minor leagues uh, with the Mets. Mark Carrion was another guy I roomed with throughout the, the minor leagues. And, and uh, you know, Billy, obviously a guy that I was close to, John Gibbons, who turned out to be a major league manager. And, uh, in that, but, you know, Dwight Gooden was a teammate of mine, Daryl Strawberry in instructional league. So I, you know, I was around that, that era, the Lenny Dykstra's of the world. And, and, uh, who by the way, got defamed more by the judge who ruled on his case that he did Ron Darling, uh, the other day, which was amazing. The, the sort of ruling on Lenny Dykstra, but, uh, you know, it was one that, uh, it was a great era of talent in that Mets farm system, uh, and a tough time to get up there because of all that talent.
1: You know, every sport's going to have to deal with this. It's just baseball's having to deal with it first because no fans in the stands. It's going to happen with the NFL, but they haven't had their negotiations with the players. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the NBA and hockey. It's just baseball's front and center. Cause they're really the first ones that have to negotiate this. How do you think this plays out between the union and the owners?
0: Well, I I'll, I'll say I'm hopeful, but I, I don't know that I go as far as saying I'm optimistic. I know others are, uh, but, you know, I don't think the players are believing the owners when the owners say, if it's 82 games or 114 games with prorated salaries and the players don't want to come off of that, we're better served to not play at all. And and, and that's what I don't think the players believe, that the owners would be better served to not play uh, if the only option they have is prorated salaries in 82 games or 114 games that schedule. They're, they're just better off not playing. They'll lose less money by shutting the game down than they would to play under those uh, criteria. And so uh, I'm hoping that the latest proposal, that although the 114 games is a complete non-starter for owners because of how much money they are lose per game, the notion of deferrals was at least put out there. And that concept is a good one, despite the fact the context in which it was proposed doesn't work. On the other side, the owners who sort of threatened 50-game season uh, within that, did say 50 games with prorated salaries, which the concept really works for the players, but the context didn't. But usually in a negotiation, once you put out that you're willing to at least consider a concept, you're suggesting that it's it might fit for you in other context. And so I'm hoping that 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 may get us down the road of the right number of games with prorated salaries, with deferrals, with contingencies that, that deferred money will get paid if. We get to the playoffs. If we're able to complete the playoffs, if we're able to, because the playoffs is where the money's coming in for the owners to be able to afford the players' salaries that would get paid before the playoffs start. And so if we pay the players and don't have the playoffs, then you're looking at catastrophic uh, losses. And as Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, said, potentially biblical losses for major league teams.
1: I just know this if NASCAR's going, Golf starting up on June 11th. NBA is going to have playoffs. Hockey's going to have playoffs. Football's going to start training camp and preseason games. If all of that's going on and baseball's not playing, it will be one of the worst looks of all time.
0: Yeah. So, so I and I and I don't disagree. But the one thing I I want to point out to people to to be fair to baseball. Uh, and here's the thing: I think they need to make a deal and they need to sort of put every individual personal issue aside and find whatever common ground there is to play. But the issue is that, you know, the NHL and the NBA were about 75% through their season and the players got 75% of their pay already or more. And so, you know, they, they sort of aren't as upset the timing of the virus and the way it hit wiped out the start of our season. And therefore, and we don't know whether there's going to be fans, and you know, We don't know what revenues are. And so we're, we're negotiating a much bigger pie than what the NBA and the NHL are. So I understand we are where we are. I just hope we could do it quietly and peacefully and get a deal done so that people can look at baseball as part of the, the healthy solution to society, both with the virus and with what we're do, dealing with all the social injustice out there right now so people can feel good about baseball.
1: Let's end on this. I've always wanted to ask you, one of the weirdest things you've ever seen in baseball is Mike Piazza in a Marlins uniform. You trade for him. Did you know when he was being traded from L.A. down to Florida, did you know that you were going to be able to get him at the time?
0: So, no, we didn't. In fact, we called. I called Dave Dombrowski after that trade just to check in with him. Uh, and Dave and I had made deals the preceding offseason to get out lighter and Dennis Cook. Uh, and so, you know, we had had a lot of discussions. And I, and I checked in to see what he was doing. Now, we had Todd Hundley, who was recovering from Tommy John surgery at the time, our catcher, who was a 40-homer catcher, a really good catcher. Uh, but he had Tommy John. We weren't sure what that elbow was going to look like. We weren't exactly sure when he was coming back. We were a good little team, but we didn't have star power, and we weren't quite a playoff team. Uh, and so I checked in, and Dave said, we're going to hold him for a while, and you know, I'll let you know if we're going to move him. And then about a, you know, a few days later, he called back and said, you know what? We're not going to hold him. We're going to go ahead and make the deal uh, and see what we can do. And so, uh, you know, I went to ownership and, and, you know, there was a whole discussion. And We initially, uh, after talking to owners, came back and said, you wanna, we don't want to duplicate a strength to bring in Piazza when we are going to get home and back and give up our prospects and do it. So we're probably not in. Uh, and then, you know, after we sort of revisited and, and challenged ownership a little bit more on the concept and the topic and where we were, uh, we got approval to go back. And the, the interesting thing was because Dave Nabrowski and I had had so many conversations, I knew every player he liked in our organization because they all came up in some part of our discussions. Because we were in on Kevin Brown, we got lighter, we got cooked. Uh, and, so, uh, and I know that Dave likes to make the decision on the trade. He likes lists from which to choose players. And so I went back to him and I offered him, you can have one player off of list A, one player off of list B, and one player off of list C. And there were three players on each list. And on those lists, I put the players that I would have offered straight up in these three guys for Piazza. But I know he likes to make the decision. So I put Preston Wilson on list A, Ed Yarnell on list B, and Jeff Getz on list C. And then say, take your pick. And he came back to, OK, we'll take li- Preston Wilson off list A, Ed Yarnell off B, and Jeff Getz off C. And we made a deal pretty quickly because we knew who he liked and let, and put it in a format that he liked in order to make the deal.
1: Absolutely fascinating. I just want to let you know, uh, Jim Duquette and Mike Farron uh, come on the program, and my Sirius XM uh, came up uh, in my car. That uh, my 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 free because I bought a new car a while back, and it can't. I re-upped because I support you guys. It's my favorite channel. Uh, I think you guys do an unbelievable job. So keep killing it on Sirius, and I'll keep uh, Sirius XM, and I'll keep uh, promoting you guys. Thank you so much for the time. Be well and be safe.
0: Terrific. Thanks very much. Appreciate that.
1: Well, from a front office guy turned media guy, how about a player? Doug Glanville. You know, seeing Doug on ESPN and also what he's doing with The Athletic and he's now a professor, he's he's really a fascinating guy. Former outfielder Doug Glanville. You know, the number one thing that we have been trying to do here with A's Cast Live is bring on familiar voices and, you know, people that uh, we love to talk to and bringing back Doug Glanville from ESPN and The Athletic. Thank you so much for coming on. We always appreciate it.
3: Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Always have a good time.
1: (laughs) You know, on The Athletic, you guys recently had a Zoom call where you were with uh, retired African-American players and Ken Rosenthal. And it's, you know, I'm looking at it right now. What was that call like? How was the experience?
3: Yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. and, And it actually came together through... Ken Rosenthal, he sent me a text message on Saturday, and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, getting a group together to sort of talk about what's happening in our country, and uh, you know, I thought it'd be great if you know maybe you would be part of this panel or moderate, and uh, you know, certainly a lot of the players I would know or have been former teammates or opponents. So, you know, it started there, and and I kind of expanded the group a little bit, and you know, pretty soon it, it came together quickly, and." Uh, I I think part of it was just to share, you know, just start up there like almost as old friends getting together in a reunion setting, but also see if there's something we can uh, do through our support of each other to share with the world, share with people that are also trying to make sense of things that are going on. And, and, yeah, I mean, we didn't know where it was exactly going to go. We had questions, but we also understood they could take it a lot of different directions. So I had to tap my uh, professor work I've been teaching the last three years, uh, at university of Connecticut most recently. And, uh, really, it really helped me figure out how to navigate really you know, certainly tough subject matter that we're facing right now.
1: You know, your post playing career has become fascinating. Broadcaster yes. writer professor. I, I mean, did, did, is this what you envisioned when you were playing <laughs> what you would do when, when you were done playing?
3: I had no idea what, exactly, what I was going to do afterwards. I mean, that's the thing for most players. You, you end, and it's rarely on your own terms. You're mostly in denial that it's going to end. You're like, well, I still got my slider. I still can do this. And uh, your body's kind of giving way. And I didn't really expect to be retired as quickly as, I, as, a, as it turned out. You know, I was with the Yankees in 2005. That was my last spring training. And they released me about a week to go. And I had this elaborate plan to get engaged to my wife uh, on the off day after we were in New York, and I never got to New York, so I had to replan on that one. So didn't really have a plan, but one thing I knew is I had a good relationship with the media, and I enjoyed you know, talking to them you know, you know, almost as much or just as much as my teammates. We had Harry Callis for years, so there was so much that I said, well, I really enjoy this, and I like writing, and it, it just sort of evolved my moment was when the Mitchell report broke, exposing all the PED and steroid use in baseball. And I noticed that a lot of the coverage around it was either naming names or calling for names. And I thought there was a lot of other territory to explore. And I was in a good situation as a recently retired player. uh, I had a lot of information around, uh, you know, playing, working with the Players Association and being part of the executive subcommittee with then executive director Don Fear. So all that seemed to be a perfect storm for me to write. And what I did, it did well. And I kept going to the well, you know, week after week talking about life and baseball. So in some ways I followed that passion. And when my father passed away in 2002, I found that writing was a way I felt really connected to him. And, And even here 17, 18 years later, it still feels the same. So I have a lot of motivations behind it. And then when you tie it together, Growing up in a town like Teaneck, New Jersey, where diversity was celebrated, it was inclusive, I had friends of all walks of life, and I see sports as the best of what we could accomplish when we work together, no matter where our backgrounds you know, started, then I felt like there's so much I could put together to share that. And, and now as a, as a teacher professor, I, I find it even more exciting to talk to young people, because even though I'm teaching, I'm also learning quite a bit from them.
1: Well, it's not a shocker. You're one of those smart guys that graduated from an Ivy League school. So I'm I'm not shocked at uh, everything you're doing. But uh, uh, the one thing that I I love about the athletic and it's kind of like what we're doing here with A's cast and A's cast live is we got to a point where everybody tried to tell us less is more. And that's not the case. And if you do, if you do good work. That you can do a deep dive and it can be lengthy, whether it's podcasts, whether it's interviews, whether it's articles in the article and I, I, everybody, I think if you're a sports fan, the athletic is second to none now in journalism covering all sports. And the article is A Conversation, Retired African-American MLB Players on Race, Baseball in America. I just, I love how The Athletic allows you guys to, you know, they're not counting your words. They allow you to do what's right.
3: Yeah, it's it's been a, a wonderful experience working with The Athletic. And, you know, it came together in a way. I actually called, uh, you know, some of the, the founding uh, gentlemen that started it with Alex and, And Paul and I spoke to them and they said well hey look I have these ideas and it took a minute to come together and one thing that was very exciting was the chance to work with Jason Stark you know that podcast came to life a little bit before it actually came to life we had been friends for a long time in different capacities either colleagues or he was covering the Phillies and and the funny thing about that is when we had our quote-unquote interview for this podcast for Starkville uh, they they called us and they were all in the room and, and we were, you know, across the country and they were trying to figure out a format. And I said, well, why don't we just do what we do. So we almost acted like we were on a phone call and Jason and I just started talking and it just, like, we had people cracking up. We had people, because that's what we do. We, we text each other like, hey, did you see that? Did you see that? So it was truly a friendship that turned into a podcast and uh, they were willing to kind of run with that. And uh, the fact that we have this kind of old school journalism and this ability to go deeper in the intimacy of having your local team uh, be you know front and center, I, I loved it, and I, I just thought it was a great uh, possibility. So the fact that they're exploring these things in the way they are shows a lot of courage because it's tough to dig into social issues in, in sports. and you know you might get to stick to sport, you get some backlash. Uh, it's not going to be always smooth sailing, but they, they still step forward, and, and we ended up doing something I was really proud of and, and very important the other
1: day. So you know about labor negotiations between the union and the owners. And when I hear 114 games, and then I hear 50 to 60 games, it's a negotiation. It's business. It leads me to believe we meet in the middle, 80, 82 games. That's how I would see it. And they're going back and forth. You've been a part of this. How do you think it's going? Yeah, I I
3: so I think your instincts are correct on that. They, you have the middle ground now. They might not go straight to the middle. Uh, I hope they cut through the chase and don't go. Okay, I'm going to go 93. You're going to. Go. <laughs> so, but the negotiations historically have always been a little bit of a cat and mouse game. I mean, the years that we you know, worked on a lot of these policies, 94, 95, of course, was a strike, and 2002 is is another tricky year. The PED policies, things like that. So you go back and forth, and it is truly it's a negotiation, and sometimes you want to see who's going to blink. But I I know the public appetite for that, and understandably is 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 not that uh, deep or excited, right? We we're dealing with a lot of things, and if baseball has the 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 path to be able to play, people want to get it done. You know nobody we know health and safety is serious. If so you have the green light to at least give it a shot, then you don't want to get hung up on. You know, economic structures and systems and all these other things. Uh, when I look at the two sides, so to speak, and I, I want to see that it's more partners, uh, that's, the, that's the one that's at its best. You see you know, the owners are sort of worried about that bottom line, how much is going to be the outlay for the season. You know that every game played, they, they're losing money or at least making less because you know, they don't have any tickets. There's no gates. There's no concessions. There's no parking. Whereas the players want to make sure, and this has always been you know, our story when I was playing, they're worried about the structure, you know, and, I, and I'm sure they've already moved forward in a better way because they're accepting this prorated instead of this highly discounted, but more of a prorated structure. So you'll make what you would make per game. That's something you can build on. And, and that's something that they can sort of take with them. So I, I see a lot of middle ground there. It might take a little bit, but the sooner they get this done, the more games you can get in, the more you can start getting back to, OK, let's get training camp going and, and get to
1: work. Do you think the players understand how bad it's going to look if the NBA's playing, the NHL's playing, golf's going, NASCAR's going, football's going to training camp, and they're not playing? Do you think the players truly understand how bad that look will be?
3: I think they understand, but... I also know that when you get across the table and it's this long storied, centuries long battle and you have had an approach and it's always been contentious that, yes, you, you may still dig in and not necessarily looking at the big picture in the same way. Uh, players understand what's happening in, their, in our country and I'm sure they all want to play, but they also are afraid of sort of going against something that we were taught when we came up as a player. One was you always pres- preserve the past and protect it. And you also preserve and pr- protect the future. Uh, your time in the present is, you know, it's sort of dependent on your ability to do those things. So for example, when I was at 94, 95 these years, I had to think about, okay, all these players before me, you know, they fought, they went to, on strike, they did things and they had way less than I did. And they were able to fight for a system to create free agency and arbitration and all these things. So I have a duty to them. Then looking forward, you know, we always say don't mess it up. I have, I have a job to make sure I preserve something for when the next generation comes uh, so that they're able to thrive. So that's that's sort of what you get indoctrinated into as a, as a player. And there's no doubt that the players are aware of that, and you see a lot of people speaking out. But they understand that you, they can't win the necessarily the public uh you know, sort of the public battle out, out forward. They have to figure out a way to keep it close to vest, work with the owners, and, and get it done. But that would be an absolute horrific look if all these other sports figure it out, get playing, and lap you, and you're sitting there with a canceled season. That would be pretty terrible.
1: <laughs> oh, Because baseball is the one sport you can play every day. Yeah. The other sports you can't play, you can't play golf every day, can't do that. Na- well, I can play golf every day, but you can't. <laughs> PJ Tour can't play every day. NASCAR, NBA and, and the relief. You know, we talk about baseball having lost its luster and its, its tag as our national pastime in a time where everybody's still stuck at home for the most part what baseball would do for people every single day, look forward to it, you know, n- not playing it at seven o'clock at night locally, playing it maybe more like at five o'clock. I mean, you could regain that national pastime by playing every day.
3: Absolutely. I mean, this is a moment. It's an opportunity on so many levels. One is just simply playing, starting a season and having that every day, setting an example, you know, being transparent and, and even all the things they're going to learn on health and safety, they, they share those things. Uh, there's so many opportunities that way. Also, just part of the healing. Is it going to solve everything socially that we have? No, but it's going to give a vision of what's possible when we work as a team. You know, you, you know maybe baseball, yes, it may be non-essential, but what is essential for us as a society is to remember that we're a team. We have to kind of be reminded of that whatever, wherever you're coming from. And it's always good to see reinforcements of people of different walks of life playing for a common goal. Uh, I always reference this story of going to spring training every year, and there's players from all over the world, different colors, shades, creeds, whatever, they come together. And at first, everybody has preconceived notions. Everybody has bias. So this guy's from the Dominican, this guy's from you know, Alabama, whatever, you have these ideas. And those ideas go away fairly quickly when it comes to getting on the field and thinking about who you want to have the ball in the ninth inning. They start to change when you see who has the work ethic, who's doing the extra work in the weight room, who's looking out for your family. I mean, that, that just sort of cuts through a lot of stuff. And, and we need more of that because we, we don't seem to have as much access as we need to each other to kind of realize a lot of our preconceived notions and biases are not correct. You know? And baseball, as you said, is every day. So you get reinforced that every day. It's not like, oh, I'll see you next Sunday. No, no, here we go. We got to get after it again. There's our opponent. Not each other, it's across it's across the dugout, and now everybody in baseball will be on the same team because what's at stake. So that's a great opportunity. And baseball would really blow it if they don't get on the field.
1: You know, we'll end on this because I, I, I think you make a great point for Americans to watch on television and to see men who were born all over the world working together, playing together. Striving for the same thing. You know, we have a very diverse sport. You know, we have guys from Asia. We got guys from down under. We got guys from Latin America. We got guys from all over the world playing in Major League Baseball. At some point, we need to heal. And I think it would be really good for people to turn on the TV and see men born from all over the world playing together. I think that would be good for for people to see. 100%.
3: One hundred percent. It would be it would be great for people to see, and just a reminder. And even when you try to say, "Well, baseball is a game," you realize that there's so much more to it. And that doesn't take away from recognizing the essential elements of who's supporting us at this time. Whether it's the medical professionals or the grocery stores, there's so much going on that we know people are taking extraordinary risks of their own health and safety to to bring us certain. Uh, necessities and comforts and all these things. So that's always have to have that perspective But then we all still have that opportunity to take a couple of lessons from what is considered non-essential right the the, the optional world that we kind of say wait a minute there are reinforcing things that are, are good to aspire to and and Baseball is one of those sports and I, I love baseball I've always loved it as, since a kid and one of the elements I love most about playing was meeting people and working with people from all over the world from all different backgrounds. I watched players evolve that I played with over 10 years. I watched myself evolve and things just opening up my mind to certain things. So uh, I'm hopeful we'll have that opportunity and, uh, you know, I'll be uh, you know, along for the ride if, if baseball figures it out and gets this thing done so we can really sh- showcase, as you mentioned, how great baseball can be.
1: We're all just smarter after you come on Ace Cast Live. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it is. Hey, you're you're a fascinating guy. I always appreciate the time. Be safe and, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: Absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. Be safe too.
1: That is one smart guy and it's uh, always great to have him on the program. Always great to have on the program. I've been having him on for years when he was assistant general manager and then general manager of the San Francisco Giants. Here is Bobby Evans. Bobby Evans is with us once again. Bobby, how are you?
4: Hey, good afternoon, guys. We're, we're doing okay. We'd love to see baseball, but we are doing okay in the meantime.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And, I mean, you've been through this. You've been in the game for so many years. Uh, you, you know the finances of the game, and that that's really where we are at right now because the NBA saying we're going to start up. Hockey is saying we're going to start up the PGA tour, NASCAR football is going to go to training camp. They're going to be ready to go. H- how do we get this thing started? Cause we need baseball to help us heal. Yeah,
4: I think we, I think the good news is you have two parties, both on the owner side and the player side that want to get baseball going again. I think that the challenge of course is, you know, this agreement that they made back in March didn't, you know, didn't you know, address the what ifs on, on fans or, or other economic pieces. So now we've got a dispute that, you know, they've somehow got to find a way to reconcile. And I've seen that, that, that disparity, you know, is, is fairly large, of course, but it also in the grand scheme of things is a small amount of money that they can compromise on that hopefully gets baseball back and allows us to, you know, see baseball not only this year, but, you know, into the postseason. There's just a lot of different issues, though. I mean, these are complicated from you know the timing. I mean, I think the, the players you know are very concerned about the length of the season. You know, owners are very concerned about not being able to get in a postseason in case there's a you know a, a, a difficulty containing the virus come the fall. So there's a lot of issues. They're not all just economic, but clearly they all have a, a centerpiece of, of disparity relative to the money.
1: So when you talk about the television money, is it does it really come in for teams during the playoffs?
4: Well, I think that there, you know, every, every team has their local uh, television deal, but you know, there's also the national television deal, which is, is fairly lucrative during the season, but there's no doubt that the, the post season, I mean, we, I've seen numbers, you know, they're not, they're, they're not necessarily at, but they are certainly approaching, you know, close to a billion dollars worth of, of revenue potential in a postseason, And so You know, I think that's a lot of money to leave on the table. And I think that's enough incentive to imagine that these two sides are going to come to an agreement. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, your national deals are obviously much, much more enhanced by your postseason.
1: You know, one of the things in the NFL, because the Green Bay Packers are owned by the city of Green Bay, so people are able to look into the NFL numbers. We on the outside don't get to look into the baseball numbers, but. So Darren Ravel tweeted that for like the NFL, like 70% of everything they make is based off television. So the majority of the money, the NFL makes is off TV. So, so how much in baseball are, are the owners going to be losing without having fans in the stands?
4: Well, I think that varies of course, from club to club. I mean, you, you know, one, one thing that's not talked a lot about is the amount of revenue that's being lost by the the low revenue clubs. I mean, you know clubs are being supplemented by the by the revenue sharing of you know 25 30 35 40 plus million dollars and and that's basically there's no revenue sharing this year now and so the, those clubs that are dependent upon that revenue sharing that's a lot of money out the door just from the get-go uh, obviously that's in some ways you could say is uh, a savings for those larger market teams but they don't have the revenue to share so they're not saving money either and i've seen numbers as large as almost 400 million for a team like the New York Yankees and again we don't have the visibility to have you know access to that publicly in terms of the actual numbers but we see those those numbers uh, described as significant and you know ultimately the dependence upon the fans at the stadium you know I've seen you know numbers in the 30% to 40% range for baseball and that doesn't surprise me but I don't think it's just ticket sales. I mean, obviously, if you're a sponsor and you have an advertisement on the wall or advertisements on the scoreboard that fans are not attending those games and, you know, you get the benefit of of whatever those advertisements are shown on TV, but you don't get the benefit of, you know, 30,000 fans looking at it every night.
1: You know, I think about a shortened season. I got a feeling that, you know, when when the players say 114 and then now the owners say 50-ish. I got this feeling we're going to meet in the middle around 82. But whatever it is, it's a shortened season. You've built rosters that have won World Series. You know how to do this. Uh, What do you think it's like for the front office when you're going to have a, a shortened season building the roster for, it's not for the long haul, it's not a marathon, this is going to be a sprint.
4: Well, it's important to get off to the right start. I mean, you've got to get off to a good start. I mean, if you get off to the start that like the Nationals did last year, you won't even make the playoffs because you've got a much shorter season. And whether it's 50 games or 82 games, either way, the Nationals don't even make the postseason. So I think every club is under pressure to get off to a good start. And, you know, that means, you know, making sure your guys are ready and in shape and you've got a strategy, uh, depending on what your schedule looks like on how to do that early on, because you're not going to have an easy way to catch up.
1: Yeah, and I got to think managing is going (laughs) to be making these decisions, knowing that my God, we can't lose any games.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, early on, you're going to really be under pressure to get off to a good start, and I think that you know that part of that's going to be you know uh, why you'll see the best roster, you know, from day one, and you know whether you know whether you're you're thinking about. Uh, you know, how large these rosters are. I mean, some of that's going to be an expanded roster, which will be at a benefit. I mean, obviously if you're a nationally club, you're probably looking at a DH, which for some clubs will be an advantage for some clubs. It won't be an advantage. They don't have, you know, that, that guy on that, on that roster right now. And so that may have to come through, through some waiver or trade. I don't know how much clubs are going to be willing to, you know, to, to make changes to their roster um, because basically everybody's got a chance for a short schedule. So I don't think you're going to want to count yourself out too early.
1: Yeah, everybody's got a puncher's chance, and that's why it's going to be fascinating. And I talked to Bob Nightingale, who you know from USA Today earlier, and we were talking about realignment. And baseball over the years has really looked at this. They've made some changes, but the fact that West Coast teams travel far more than East Coast teams, that's definitely a competitive advantage. And and, and I think about from rivalries, if you had the Giants and the A's and the Dodgers and the Angels and the Padres and like the Mariners all in one division, less flying. Plus, I know that when the Giants come over, our attendance goes up. Dodgers come up here, our attendance goes up. You know, people don't care about the Texas Rangers. And I think for the Giants, you know, the, the, the the Colorado Rockies, I just if we could get more West Coast teams playing, wouldn't that be better for our franchises?
4: Well, I mean, the the travel schedule for these players is, you know, especially when you're trying to play 162 games in 183 days, which is what the long time long time is what it's been. They they added a few days to the schedule this last year, but that's a lot of games and it's not enough off days, especially when four of them are lumped together at the All Star break. So you're you're really pressed uh, to get to get your uh, guys uh, some rest. And yeah, I, I you know, I at some level from a fan experience perspective, I mean, you know, the fans are going to show up you know, a lot more for, you know, for, you know, road teams that are popular. And so if you're, if you're the, you know, in the national league, you know, and you're losing the Dodgers, for example, now the Giants of course wouldn't because we're West coast, West coast, but if you're the Cubs, you don't want to lose the Dodgers or the Giants, you know, you want to make sure you're getting to see them, at least their one trip in a year. And if, if you were some reason able to see them more that you would, you'd take it. And in, in our case, you know, if we see, if we see, uh, you know, a lot more of the Seattle Mariners or, a lot more of the Padres and a lot less of, of our division rival, the Dodgers, that would be very debilitating and disappointing. Um, that said, you know, we see how popular the Bay bridge games are. I don't know how popular they are if they're happening 18 times a year, um, but they're certainly popular happening six times a year.
1: Yeah. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a wild ride and who knows? I mean, would this be, you know, if you have, if you're Rob Manfred and you have a lot of ideas of how you'd like to change the game, would this be the time to throw in some changes to see if they work for the future? If they work, you keep them. If they don't, you scratch it.
4: Well, I think that's why you're seeing the playoff format with 14 teams. I mean, I think that's one of the things that this is an opportunity to test it. Uh, you know, especially with a shortened schedule, you have more teams that are going to get a chance to, to, to make the postseason. Uh, so that's an example. The D.H., at some level, you might say that's a permanent change, but at some level, it could also just be a temporary change that you you measure out and see the feedback and see the response. And and there'll be other things. I mean, whether you go with an electronic strike zone or uh, you know maybe I don't think they're going to do this in this in this session of the season, but you you know if you're worried about your pitching, you could start extra innings with a runner on second. Not not one of my favorite things, but it's certainly something that they talk about. And any of that could be applied to try to shorten the length of games. You know, the fact that it's a shorter schedule, you have a you hopefully will have a chance to keep guys healthier. You
1: know, when we talked to you in San Diego, it really was fascinating about how you're helping bring baseball to Egypt and that they've got some terrific athletes, and you actually could see at some point an Egyptian born major league baseball player. I'm not sure where it's going right now with the pandemic, but give us an update how it's working.
4: Well, you know right as the right as the spring training uh, camps closed, i mean we we were right in the the opening of what would have been the spring season in in cairo. and so we had to really shorten the 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 time span significantly and and now, you know when, when schools close, I mean some of the some of the uh, instruction is happening through the local school system. so, you know, it's definitely hit a snag in in terms of the spring season, but we'll get, we hope to get back strong in the fall. We, you know, there's a lot of cooperation potential through Major League Baseball and, you know, it's, it's, you know, Major League Baseball has recognized it as an RBI program um, over there. And so there's support that's coming from a lot of different sources. I know a number of Major League clubs, including the Giants, have helped support the effort. And it's fascinating to see young people playing a game that they've, they've hardly ever seen on TV, much less played. And so now they're, they're picking up on the the nuances and, and, you know, these are young kids that many of whom are very good athletes that have speed, they have arm strength, they have, you know, uh, potential. And so it only takes one to really break the ice. And ironically, one of the fields we were playing on, you know, uh, over there is, is, is at a local international school where, you know, ironically, Steve Kerr, you know, played high school basketball. So it was, it's a small world in the end.
1: Let's end on this. Everybody, and I've been asking most of my guests, everybody's doing a deep dive on something, whether it's a TV series, a book series, what's Bobby Evans been doing since we haven't had baseball?
4: <laughs> wow. You know, I, I, that's a great question. I mean, I, I've enjoyed, you know, just the time I, I feel like in some ways I've, I've been in uh uh, in the, uh, shelter in place for about 18 months but you know the uh the chance to do things with my kids that you know they don't have school they don't have ball games they don't have places they have to go so we're able to to do things that you know we we maybe occasionally would get a chance to do like simple things like go ride a bike I mean we're able to do that pretty near you know multiple times a week you know and and we're able to go out and play catch and do things that we take for granted um that you know and and in the busyness of schedules you don't have time to do but it's, it's been, uh, you know, reconnecting with a lot of people who, you know, you, you see the I've had my share of Zoom calls, you know, but you you reconnect with people from a distance. And it's it's not the same. There's a lot of a lot of, uh, a, lot of uh, a lot of hungry people for for time out of the house. And I, I look for my opportunities. I make uh, I, I do all the grocery runs. You know, I, my wife's more important than I am. If I get sick, they can replace me, but they can't replace her. So um, so we try, I try to at least contribute in that way.
1: I got to tell you, Bobby, I ride my 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 bike every single day. I'm riding my bike like I'm 12, 13 years old. That's how much I'm riding my bike.
4: <laughs> well, you know, it's it feels a lot safer out there because there's not as many cars.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Hey, Bobby, so much respect, and it's always great having you on. Be well, be safe, and hopefully we'll get this baseball season going again, and we'll talk soon.
4: I look forward to it. Thank you, guys.
1: Well, that'll do it for A's Unfiltered. We want to thank Hall of Famer Rod Carew, Steve Phillips, Doug Glanville, and Bobby Evans. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This
4: has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.